Hi, it's Monday morning, and uh, before I begin, I want to say that today's Talk Today's podcast is being sponsored by a very nice person from Israel, Rabbi Olshan, uh, Michael Olshan, and, uh, and family, and Eli Lunishmas, in memory of his father, who was Mr. Arnold Olshan, Shmuel Abba Ben Meir, Ovashalm. And he tells me that he was a Moker Abonan, a Moker Atoro, and Osik with Sarchi Tzibur Ben Very, very nice, very, very impressive. Uh, we appreciate, as always, all of our sponsors. Today, I was, well, yesterday actually, when we came, uh, now it's the summer, I have a little bit more time. Although I'm planning a new series soon, uh, which I'll talk about later, for the three weeks, because I always do that during the three weeks. But, um, make a long story short, I asked Ariel Bum, I said, who's the artist this week? And he gave me a bunch of names, and I, one of them was Hildesheimer. I said, I'm sure I did him in the past. I see, I'm, I'm so in my memory like I did there was real Hildesheimer. And he said, no. And I couldn't believe it. So here it goes. Uh, so we have this week the art site of a very, very, very interesting person. Not so well known. Uh, because he got pushed aside by Samson Raphael Hirsch. I don't mean physically, but I'm just saying in the memory. Everybody knows of Samson Raphael Hirsch. Uh, Breuer's, the whole nine yards, uh, the writings of Hirsch. But Hirsch was one of two big people in Germany, possibly three, but two big people in Germany who in the 1800s uh, were the champions of orthodoxy. Let's put it that way, if I can use that term. And it's not far-fetched to use that term. Uh, so here today we're dealing with somebody, which is from the Yekis. But a very unusual, very interesting type. It's Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, who lived in the 1800s, like 1820 to 1900, I think it was. Almost that. And that means smack in the middle of the 19th century. So if you're talking about Germany in the 19th century, you're talking about all the changes of modernity that kicked into Judaism and all the different isms. Germany in the 1800s is when there started the Haskalah in serious uh, way, then the Reform Movement, then Conservative Judaism, then the uh, Secular Judaism, what you call Wissenschaftler Judentums, which means the academic study of Judaism. Historians love to do, uh, when I was young, that was a very popular thing in history. You know, do the German Jews in the 19th century. There's a lot of different intellectual trends. The German Jews were not intellectual in the Jewish sense. As the time went on, most of them were dummies when it comes to Judaism. But they were certainly not dummies when it comes to secular. Many became famous professionals and Nobel Prize winners and things like this. In other words, this is when you begin to see, in the 19th century, the dramatic shift in Jewish history in which the Jews start to participate in European culture, the Western culture, make significant um, contributions. And this was very problematic for the non-Jews because they expected the Jews to simply um, assimilate and uh, hopefully convert and acculturate and consume European culture, but not produce it. It's one of my little talks that I give in places. And when the Jews began to produce culture, uh, this triggered an anti-Semitic reaction. Anyway, so this Rabbi Israel Zolzheimer lived a very, very, very interesting life. He himself was an extremely unusual person. And a very different type of guttle. Here's someone, and and the truth is, 
as with all these little talks I give, each one is like a, a 10 hour business. From him, you could do 20 hours. Uh, because he really was the term derches. He's the real guy. Hirsch, less so, to be perfectly honest, even though he coined, you know, he, he became the model of the phrase. And we all are very familiar with Shimshafal Hirsch, but, uh, in, in a, in a different way. If I were doing a, uh, graduate seminar and all, I would, uh, very, give a nice paper for a student to do, good student to do, compare and contrast the two great Rabbanim in Germany in the 19th century, Shimshafal Hirsch on the one hand, Israel Hazam on the other. It'd be a very, very interesting kind of a paper. All right, let's get down to facts. Here's someone who lived most of his life in Germany with a short break in Hungary, as you'll see in a second. And he lived from 1820 to around 1900, maybe 1899, something like that. And uh, as you all know, Judaism was in crisis in Germany in the 1800s. And what you and have called the Reform Movement uh, really hit in the 1820s. 1819 was the famous uh, first uh, uh, temple in Hamburg. But I want to be very clear, the vast majority of the German Jews were not into Reformed Judaism. I use that term as a, as, as a, a code word, because I know for the average listener on this podcast that doesn't know anything about history, so you say the word Reformed Judaism, it just triggers certain associations in the mind. The actual movement to reform the Jewish religion was a minority of phenomenon in Germany. But you mean going not from. So I use the word reform in that sense. Going not from. Or modernizing. Because the truth of the matter is that the uh, uh, feeling that things should change somehow or other from being not exactly they were in the past was pretty universal. Okay? I mean, uh, there was a time when all Jews had to uh, walk around wearing different types of clothes than the non-Jews. Uh, usually clothes degradation of one sort or another to stand out. Uh, and so it became, this is Germany, so it's not exactly the Hasidic garb. And you are not going to know what I'm talking about, but having said that, Jews wore certain types of, of clothing that were different than the others. But by the 19th century, when liberalism began to begin to begin to begin, in Germany it was a very weak movement, so the general feeling is people should dress normal. Normal means European, means like Tagalog. Just one example. Or don't go, don't, or, or don't go around with payas. Notice there was a, a, a general feeling among the vast majority of Jews living in what we call today Germany, which are a bunch of different German states, that, you know, things should modernize to some degree or another. I, that doesn't mean become not from. You see, here we go to the question that was only raised in the 19th century, which is, what's the definition of from? Uh, are all the externals part of being from? Or just the keeping of Tarmitz's is definition of being from? Or if you want to be a little more, uh, well, let's leave it at that. Now, if you ask a Satmer, he'll say this, if you don't dress in a certain garb, uh, you're not from. That's the way you see it. And they know that there are people that don't, so you say, well, to the degree that they don't, they're not from. But a regular American Jew would say like this, it doesn't matter that much how you dress. If you dumb three times a day, you keep Shabbos, you keep the mitzvahs, you learn this and the other, you're from. Right? And, uh, you know, these kind of notions were there. So I always talk about Reform A and Reform B there was a, a very widespread movement to reform, to ch introduce changes in the Judaism, because what happened was that, uh, I better not get too long on a tangent on this, but I'll, I'll devote two minutes to this, because you have to know a little bit of the history. I don't like to do the history so much here. 
Uh, long ago, the Jews had zero civil rights. And then, and they were subject to all kind of persecutions, legal and otherwise, in the German states. That's the way it was for century after century. It was tough. And then, around the time of the French Revolution, the French gave the Jews civil rights, and the French actually conquered a lot of Germany, and so by the time you finish with Napoleon, a lot of Jews in Germany, in the German states, had gotten civil rights. But then Napoleon was knocked out, and uh, things back to, went back to the way they were before to some degree. It's called the Congress of Vienna in 1815 and afterwards. What's called the reaction. The reaction means against the liberalism and French Revolution. And the German states, by and large, pulled the civil rights. But the Jews, having tasted equality for a short period, under the French, they really wanted it. And from 1815 to 1870, which is a lifetime, they really were trying their best to get uh, civil rights. And in the course of this, the pressure that they felt was uh, to Germanize uh, in a cultural external sense. So they to stopped talking Yiddish and regular German, and they stopped uh, dressing funny, and they stopped, uh, what shall I say, you know, uh, uh, having outlandish... Let me put it this way. The desire to conform and look normal for Goyim, this desire even extended into Jewish religious practice. But when you talk about Jewish religious practice, you already have to be machalic between essentials and non-essentials. And all the, there are famous articles about this. And in the first half of the 1800s, especially I would say from the 1820s to 1880s, so all across Germany, with rare exceptions, uh, people say like this, it's become more, the, the thing should look more modern and uh, more dignified. And the uh, type of thing that wouldn't make a chel Hashem in the eyes of the Goyim. So this is when the German Jews start passing rules you can't talk in Shoal. Uh, I know it's the Shulchanach, but you know what I'm saying, they're doing it for different reasons. And that the pe the pe people, the, the, the form of the services should be more dignified. And uh, I don't know, I don't want to get too long in this. You should no longer have things that look outlandish, no more dancing and so forth, and uh, all kind of different religious practices, which aren't exactly against the Shulchanach. Uh, you know, not technically. They should do in order that the synagogue service should be what we would call today modern Orthodox. And I don't mean by that a negative term. Modern Orthodox means should look uh, you know, there should be uh, orderly and uh, you know, harmony. I should have a chazan and uh, the, the music should be Western and uh, the show should be a dignified place as dignified as a church and even Jewish education should, you know, conform more to modern norms at least have a, a teacher's training program and, um, you know, don't do the old way with the youths have a Malamed from Poland and they would scream at the top of their voice and hit people and things like that. A lot of things that, to be perfectly honest, many of you listening that would, would sympathize with. Okay? That's Reform A. Doesn't necessarily have to go into the Shulchan Aruch. And since Ray Villar will be an outstanding example of that. When he finally got his shul in uh, Frankfurt, the famous Hirsch synagogue, they implemented a lot of these what they call synagogues or nungen, all these rules um, to make everything uh, very dignified. Nothing against the Shulchan Aruch, okay? Uh, just off the top of my head, with the Kohanim Duchen, they should wear socks. Uh, I'm sorry, with the Kohanim, don't wear socks. That looks barbaric. The Kohanim Duchen, they should wear certain slippers, you know? So uh, that already looks more um, uh, dignified. Things like that. All right. Now, this is the world in which. Our hero grew up. He's born in 1820, 
but he uh, grew up in a very interesting and unusual town in Germany, Halberstadt, which probably doesn't mean anything to most of you. Halberstadt is a town, mom's in the belly button of Germany. And uh, it's an old city. For our purposes, it eventually came under Prussia and uh, in the 17th century. And uh, I don't want to bore you with the historical details, even though some of you write me, they wanted the historical details. But believe me, most of the people listening don't want the history. But there used to be something called the Electorate of Brandenburg, which eventually became the Kingdom of Prussia. And Halberstadt was ruled by them. And in the late 16, early 1700s, they had one of these famous court Jews, uh, Baron Lehman, who was this rich Jew who uh, was connected with the government. And uh, he was one of these. I just did a series on these type of guys, war contractors. And uh, some of you may have read the uh, book by Marcus Lehman when you're young, The Royal Resident, which is a fictionalized, romanticized story of this very important Jew who became uh, uh, very connected with the kings and the governments and uh, used his opportunities, his, his pull, to build a, um, a relatively nice situation for the Jews in this town of Halberstadt. And he even built a yeshiva there and uh, a synagogue and things like that. Even today, I've never been there, but there's a, a museum about him because he still has stickle of his palace left over in Halberstadt. And the reason I mention it is because since he made yeshiva there, what they call the Kleis, so that became a Mokham Torah. And there weren't so many in Germany. There were some, but there were not so many. Here's one because of this guy. And all during the 1700s, and even into the 1800s, that's my point, Halberstadt was unusual in Germany of having a rather stronger Orthodox element, even though there were also the non-Orthodox. So when Basil Hildewein was born in Halberstadt, it wasn't a regular town, and uh, his father, if I remember correctly, was connected with the Kleis with the yeshiva, but he died young. Uh, and this young man, our hero, grew up in the 1820s, he had a mother, but he was not a father, uh, just naturally taking to learning. But, listen very closely, the Haskalah hit Germany, including Halberstadt, in the 1700s. Again, I'm just dumbing this down. This we called the Haskalah of Moses Mendelssohn, which assumed different ways in Germany. And one of the things that happened, Mendelssohn died in 1785, but it went on for 30 years after him. And one of the biggest ways the Haskalah hit in Germany, now this is not the Haskalah movement of Russia, which is later. I'm talking about the Haskalah movement of Germany in the late 17, early 1800s, which is when it lasted. From 1772, based to 1820, roughly. Then it was over. But when it lasted, so a lot of it had to do with Chinuch. And uh, the Haskalah movement was in favor of reforming Chinuch. Now, what does he mean by the word reform Chinuch? It doesn't mean, or it usually didn't mean, to go from, uh, you know, uh, a Fermi school to an atheist school. We're not talking Israel or something like that. We're talking about Germany in the 1700s. And so what it means, I'll use Baltimore language, uh, either many are in Baltimore. It means you're switching like from uh, TA to Betafilla, something like that. A very modern uh, type of uh, uh, school and more modern curriculum. And believe it or not, in the town of Haberstadt, the uh, idea of reforming the education and making it more practical, although not at the expense of Frumkite, started in the late 1700s. And therefore you had, in Halberstadt, uh, something that will surprise you. A very from community, with a rabbi and a kloiz and a yeshiva and all the rest of it. 
But they had a day school. The day school was a, a regular school, four boys and girls together in mixed classes. Hear what I said? And with a what we call today a modern Orthodox curriculum. I repeat, modern and Orthodox. So it was a Torah. It was a certain amount of Talmud, you know, a certain amount. And uh, Ivrit, you know, like the Moschilic style. But, you know, Shmiris Mitzvahs, you know, dominating all that kind of stuff. And uh, even though it's, it, it, and it's, it boggles the mind to think in 1795, that early, when things were so forfumped elsewhere, you'd have in Halberstadt a town, and I say it again, it was a Mokham Torah and all the rest of it, but the day school for the young kids, you know, today's grade, let's say, is mixed classes, <laughs> and, uh, and the teachers teach, um, you know, like in America, Hebrew and English, or in German, you know, half day this, half day that, something along those lines, all right? And this school, by the way, lasted till Hitler. So, without being Hershian or theoreticians of modern orthodoxy, it kind of just automatically went that way. And therefore, Israel Hosea, when he grew up, he went to him, there aren't too many Gedolim, because he was a Gadol, yes, you'll see, who went, um, especially 1800s, to a, what's the right word, co-ed school. Um, but he did. Now, he naturally was from, and he naturally was uh, into learning. And so when he when he uh, graduated, I don't remember exactly how when he when he graduated. So from this school, which I think was his eighth grade, I, I believe. So then, what did he do? So I think he went like to a a, a junior high school, something like a ninth and tenth grade. But uh, but also put in time for learning, because he was always a big masmid. That's just who he was. And then when he was like sixteen or seventeen, that'd be you know tenth eleventh grade, right? Something like that. So then he went and he left town, and he went to Hamburg to Altona, which was um, a big uh, well. You, you know where Hamburg is, so. Uh, Hamburg's the big uh, port city in, in the north of Germany on the Baltic, on the Atlantic. And uh, Hamburg at that time was three communities, Altona, Hamburg, Wandsbeck. Some of you may have heard about that. Ahu. And there was a regular yeshiva. What's the yeshiva? Uh, there are some, uh, what's his name? Darchlaner, Yaakov uh, Etlinger. So it's interesting. Yaakov Etlinger, one second. I'm sorry. <laughs> so anyway, he learned by Yaakov Etlinger for like three years, four years. So here's a guy from 16 years old. Like I say, imagine, what, 10th grade, 11th grade, something like that, till uh, 20 or so. He was a regular Shiva. Because of Yaakov Antlinger, you've heard of him, he had just become the uh, rabbi of, chief rabbi of Altona, Hamburg, Wandsbeck, of Altona mainly. And I know that name doesn't necessarily ring a bell with everybody, but this is a very important community in northern Germany. And he was perhaps the last of the big rabbis who actually had a formal recognition from the government. He was an Av Basin of the old school during his lifetime. And uh, so here, so here's this young guy, um, Hildesheimer, coming to a regular yeshiva. I don't know how big the yeshiva was. It wasn't tiny, but it wasn't large. And uh, by the way, Rabbi Yaakov Entlinger earlier had lived elsewhere in Germany, in Mannheim. And Already at that time, he had a uh, a small yeshiva. Sam's Revel Hirsch learned under him for a year. And he was like, if you want to call it Rebbe, 
He's the Rebbe of Rav Hirsch. You understand? Uh, he only learned it for a year. Um, as opposed to Rebbe Israel Hilsheimer, he learned it was like four years, I believe. So, unlike Hirsch, he had like a, what you and I would call today a regular Shiva education. Because Yaakov Atlantic was one of the Gadoli Ador, even though it's totally German, all the rest of it. Uh, he's a separate uh, podcast, all that. Because he was a Talmud of the son of the Shagasari. People don't know that. Anyhow, um, and, you know, he learned all these Shibas stuff. At that point, he decided, you know, what is the future? And uh, one of the things in the future is, if he's going to be a su- successful in Judaism, in the rabbinate or something like that, it's already 1840, and going to need a college degree. PhD. And so he attended several universities and ended up getting his doctorate in the, one of the classic Prussian universities, University of Halle, a very Protestant uh, type place, where uh, it's famous that he, re- he actually wrote a dissertation on Jewish subjects and the teachers liked him. So here's a guy that I'm describing who uh, has a very interesting uh, educational profile, uh, but he does have a regular yeshiva um, education with smicha from the Orchanir. And he does have a regular secular education, even though he didn't do it in the, in the regular order because he spent four years in the middle of yeshiva, ending up with a doctorate. So um, that put him in an interesting situation. At that point, he was like 23, 24. He moved back to Halberstadt, which again had a cloise and was a Malcolm Torah. Now, the desire to change what you and I call Reform Judaism, that kind of thing, hit everywhere in Germany at that time. 1840s was the main time. And Haberstadt also. However, whereas in other places the Reform were able to take over because they represented the majority population, Haberstadt was a rare case where it wasn't that way. Mainly, as I understand it, due to the fact that the richest family in the community, which is a famous family from once upon a time, Hirsch of Halberstadt, the family that really bankrolled the community, the millionaires, multimillionaires, they they were very from. Right? They weren't learned, but they were very from. And this is called the family Hirsch. No relation to the same as Rebel Hirsch. This is a family that got, that was a from family, and uh, they got into the armaments business, because nearby is the Hearts Mountains, and you have, you take the iron out of there and turn into weapons, and eventually they were like major factors in, in the, uh, Steel business, this is going to sound funny what I'm saying, but it's true. The Prussian army, the German army, down to World War I, and maybe even afterwards, uh, was primarily armed, you know, in terms of heavy weapons by this front family. Uh, when they once had, I remember reading, they once had uh, the convention of the German armaments makers or something like that in the Kaiser's time. It was kosher meal. <laughs> or the comedy his family. So... Let me put it this way. To supply the army, that's big bucks. And this family, Hirsch, said they, they're anti-reform. They're pro-reform. And uh, for various reasons. And uh, they made sure that when votes came, that the reform don't win in the community the Orthodox do. And they supported the Auerbach family. They should be the rabbis there one generation after another. And different. Halberstadt was different than the other communities. There were non from there, and there were the reform. But the Orthodox was the dominant element. And on the other hand, a lot of fights are going on in, in the 1840s, and I'm talking about 
when our hero is getting uh, his uh, doctorate, this exactly when the reform movement took off and started the rocket to the degree that it did. Without giving you too much information, there were famous conventions of the reform rabbis in 1843, 44, 45, in which they issued all the reforms that they wanted to do of the Jewish religion, and all hell broke loose, and the traditionalists wrote against them, and you know people wrote back and forth. But to tell you the truth, the more you write about it, the more people get for the reform. So, um, anyhow, uh, when he came back, he settled in the town, and uh, he married a girl from that rich family. That's my point. Okay, he married a girl from that rich family, and they're very happily married. You know, if he's married in eighteen forty-four, half a century, you know, until she died, whatever. Um, and that means that. Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, for the rest of his life, never had to worry about money. He married into multi-multi-multi-millionaires, and uh, his personal family situation was assured, which put him in a unique situation with rabbis. So basically, he himself wasn't a rich one, but he had access to you know the, anything he wanted, they gave him. And I remember reading a, a story <laughs> by one of his daughters, a memoir in a German book, actually, from Monica Rickarts, the German historian, she said that Israel Hildesheimer was a big tzaddik, and therefore he wasn't into money, all the rest of it. And so what they would do is, the bro- you know, the, the wife's brothers and family would come and visit, and <laughs> they would take wads of hundreds, you know what I mean, like big wads of cash, and just stick it in the, uh, you know, with the underwear in the, in the, in, in the, uh, in, in the drawers, you know, in the bedroom. And so everybody knew in the family, you need money, you just go, you know, to one of the drawers and <laughs> you take out from those wads. Uh, not bad if you can uh, swing it that way. And as a result, uh, he's always going to have a unique position because in his career, nobody can threaten him. He's richer than all the Balabatim uh, put together. At least richer in the sense that, you know, he can draw upon money uh, that m- more than they have. It's kind of interesting... I've spoken in the past, in the history, in the 1500s and things like that. Occasionally you had famous rabbis that were also in business and they were successful that way. But it's it's not typical, right? Most rabbinim, especially big rabbis, even Hirsch, you know, in the 19th century, I mean, they're dependent on the salary. Let's put it that way. That's just the way it goes. Uh, he never took a salary. In all of his positions, they used to write about it when he died. In all the hespids, he never took a salary. Well, big deal. Of course he never took a salary. He's got more money than the whole show put together. Or again, I repeat, he has access to that. And I remember, I don't know why, I just remember when his wife died, and they were married about 40 years, something like that, 45 years. Uh, he wrote the, the uh, tombstone, and it, it was very nice. He says, Baal ureho rak al yodeho tof yeshiva kol That, you know, the the, the the husband of Reus knows the person that she married. It was due to her that he was able to be a Rosh Hashiva for all those years. Because basically, what it's like is, you know, even if I have to go collect for my yeshiva, the fact that I know that my personal family finances are no problem, correct? I know all my children are taken care of, and I don't have to worry about anything. That that makes life a little bit easier. <laughs> now, at the same time. He wasn't the type of person to take advantage of this. And by that I mean, and sit back. You know, the average guy's like this. Married a rich, uh, like you said, a married rich girl. 
sit in Lakewood, and the heck with just learning Kolel. And you don't need anybody. Right? You live in these big fancy houses, and life is good if that's your style. He was uh, the personification of Zrezes. Uh, here's somebody who learned up a storm. Even when he was in college, he put a lot of time into learning. And his whole Matthias was one in which he was very much a chassid. This is inclination, very pious, but not pious in the uh, uh, way, but in the real way. And remember, he's a yaki, so that, so in other words, by him, uh, basically, no baloney. If you want to prove you're from, you have to always make a kiddush Hashem, and uh, there's no uh, uh, funny business with money or anything like that. And glat yosher, as they say, not only glat kosher, and that's who he was. And uh, he spent, therefore, from the age of 24 to around 29, no, but the age of 30, 30, 31, uh, sitting and learning in Halberstadt. So uh, it's just funny. There's a rabbi who's living on a salary in the community. Uh, I think Selgman Auerbach, I believe. And there's a little clause, in other words, even in Germany in the 1840s, they still have like a shtickle yeshiva or shtickle kol over there. And one of them is married to the richest girl in town, and he just sits and learns all day long. He was involved a little bit in the anti-reform fights, but mainly was sitting and learning. So it was during these years that he built up a huge knowledge of Torah, Shasim Poskim, and things like that. And he got a reputation. Now here comes the interesting part of the story. Because if that's all it was, it wouldn't be that interesting. It'd be interesting from a certain human perspective, but he wouldn't be a historical figure. At the age of 31, he got an offer to go be a rabbi in a community in Hungary. This is unheard of in the Oberland. Usually, Germany was the place where the, where the Balabatim were Shomer Mitzvahs, but were Amaratzim. Hungary is the place where there was a lot of yeshivas, Pressburg, and lots of places like that, and you have a lot of Talmudic knowledge. And so usually what happens in the 1800s is you take a rabbi from Hungary and becomes a rabbi in Germany. It happened many times because they were scholars and this and that and the other. Here you have the, a unique case the other way around. They took somebody who was a pure yaki. He was in Halberstadt, he was in Altona, in Hamburg, in all these places, and now they invite him to be the Rav in Eisenstadt, which is on the border of Austria and Hungary. At that time, there used to be something called the Austrian Empire. And again, not to get too technical, but Austria was one half of the empire and Hungary was another half of the empire. It was all part of one empire. And uh, especially in 1851, Hungary had just been uh, defeated in a revolt, and they were really incorporated in the Austrian part. But you don't need to know that. So, this is a place that's not too far from Vienna. It's uh, to the east of Vienna. Today, as we speak, the borders have changed, and it's on the end of Austria. It used to be that's the, the end of Hungary. So, Austria and Hungary next to each other. Austria is to the west, Hungary to the east. And this town, Eisenstadt, what they call Kismarton in Hungarian, Eisenstadt used to be on the extreme west of Hungary. Now it's on the, the borders have changed. It's on the extreme east, east of Austria. And uh, me, myself, and I, last summer before the corona, oh, a year ago, 2019, we did a nice Central European trip. I think I, I did a podcast on it. And uh, uh, what do you call it? We went to Eisenstadt. You can see where his yeshiva was and everything. The buildings are still there. Now this is what it called Sheva Kehillus. Maybe you've heard of that. Or maybe you have relatives from there. These to be a place called in, in Western Hungary, the the, the Sheva the Sheva Kahilis. 
uh, and uh, uh, they were headquarters of Torah, I would say, from Kite. And Eisentown was an old community. The Panameras used to be there in the 18th century. And the fact that a, and, and it's the era of the Chassam Sofer, or the Chassam Sofer had died, so it's the Chassam Sofer. Uh, modernity was churning in Hungary, but in Hungary they had a very strong anti-modern and uh, orthodox movement, besides from the Hasidim, the Oberlanders. And so he invited a Yeki to be a rabbi in Oberland, which is interesting, because the Jews in the Oberland, and the Oberland is the western part of Hungary, the non-Hasidic part of Hungary, they really were kind of German, and they spoke German, actually, especially in the 1850s, and, um, uh, but they were former, and they were more learned, let's put it that way. Uh, the Oberlin was famous for being a place of, of Avasatora, like, you know, like you think of Lithuania that way, Oberlin, and, uh, which is true. And here's a guy they're taking with a PhD, it's interesting. So, clearly, at that particular point, the Balabatim in that town, in that community, said, um, in order to attract the youth, uh, we, we need a, a rabbi who's from, there's no question about a super from type, but also has a totally secular education. And therefore, the fact that he has the PhD shows that the students will be able to relate to him. You know what I mean? Uh, and the guy will be able to relate to him. And this would be a good thing against the left-wingers and the reformers. Because if we have a Rav here who's a from guy and Paskin is from, but also as a doctor from Germany, he's actually a German, then this kind of shuts up the mouth of the reform. You know, that, that kind of approach. Now, he came to Hungary, and uh, sees so a German in Hungary. There's one big difference between Hungary and Germany by the time he came there in the 1850s. The yeshivas had all closed down in Germany. In Hungary, the yeshivas were in full swing. This is the legacy of the Hassam Sofer, who had died in 1839. And one of the things that the Hassam Sofer did was uh, leave behind the legacy of his students and others, that everybody's a rub in Hungary, uh, no matter how big the town, how small the town, you make a yeshiva of some sort or another. It's just an interesting fact that I'm sure I, mu I'm sure I must have spoken about this in the past. But Hungary had dozens of yeshivas, right? Um, they're not so well known today, but in their heyday, you know, they flourished. I would call these the Hassam Silver type yeshivas. Now, Rav Hildesheimer, who comes here uh, to Eisenstadt, so. He firstly says like this, um, the number one uh, uh, job of a rabbi is chinuch. That's, that's a Hungarian notion, actually. That, uh, you know, the, the rav has to be the rav, and the abbeis and all the rest of it, but he has to have a yeshiva. Uh, but in Hungary, yeshiva means a yeshiva, you know, where you learn Gemara and things like that. And the Hungarian system doesn't have any room for girls. But here's a guy coming from Germany who already is more modern, but Mormon in a from way and went himself to a co-ed school. And so he said, the first thing we have to do is make a, a, a day school. Here it can be no more haters or anything like that. Make a day school with grades and all the rest. And four boys and four girls, uh, which kind of freaked out the community. From, of course, from. So basically that's called a TM base Yaakov, that kind of thing. Up to eighth grade. And then he said, we need a high school. The term high school doesn't exist in Hungary. What does that mean? No, he had high school to, to get an actual degree. And then he said like this, then we need yeshiva. So he built these institutions. Now, here's the thing. In the yeshiva, here, here, 
the elementary school was enough of a chiddush. The high school was mamish a chiddush. And then he said like this, uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make a yeshiva, which will be an absolute yeshiva like anywhere else in Hungary, which I'll explain in a second. But in addition to that, I want our students to have uh, a, a, an English department or secular studies department in which you'll get a BA. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Not a high school degree, a college degree. This is nuts. Now it's the European system, what they call gymnasium. But nevertheless, I'm speaking to an I'm speaking here to American audience. I know there are people listening here around the world, not for America, but I think most of you have an idea what I'm talking about, right? And the idea is you get a college degree. Uh, this is crazy, and who's going to do that? And he made a yeshiva. In those, in addition to the day school that I just described, he made a yeshiva in which. He is the Rav, and therefore he's the Rosh Yeshiva. And since it's a Hungarian-style Yeshiva, what it means is like this, that the Rav, or the Rosh Yeshiva, who's one and the same, every day has to give like multiple shirim, every day. You get what you call a shir iun, and a shir pashat, or what we would call a bikiah shir. Uh, so already, that's interesting. Every day of the week, just about, or let's put it this way, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I believe. You give every day a, a, a shir uh, Ian and shir Pashat, and then a Chavaz uh, Alvavas class, and, uh, oh yeah, and a Shulchan Aruch class, to some grades you get, the same guy. In other words, you give, like uh, you say today, two shiurim to two different levels of students. One, you give a Shulchan Aruch or a Chaim class, so you go through the whole Shulchan Aruch, with the Mogan Avram and the, and the Taz, Tori Zav, as they used to call them. And then you give a Gerodea class every day, in which, of course, you do the Taz and the Shach. Uh, at least. And other things, so now let's put it this way. If I had to give every single day of the week, or most of the days of the week, a Shir Ian and a Shir Pashat, and a Shulchan Avram, that takes up a lot of time. You, know, you could do it, it takes a lot of time. Wait a minute. He's also the chief rabbi of the town, so he's basically runs a Bezdin. Uh, he leaves his services. Uh, you see where I'm going with all this. Uh, since he's a German guy, he, can give, he gives a sermon on Shabbos. Uh, he must have given a class with the Balabata. must have been. So, basically, your whole day's taken up. I'm not finished. I'm not finished. In addition to what I just said, he said, I guess I also want to have an English department or a secular studies department. So that means we have to give courses in, um, this is 19th century, in Greek and Latin and German, of course. Teach classes in Greek, Latin, German. I'm not finished. In math, including geometry, geometry and whatever, trig and so forth, uh, I'm not finished. Uh, you got to do uh, chemistry. What else was it? Bio. None of the science courses. I'm not finished. I have to do uh, uh, history, medieval and modern history. How can anybody do this? Right? Uh, he did it. I remember like, there's articles about it. I remember counting it all up. The guy taught classes 60 hours a week, which is at a, which is crazy. Um, 60 hours a week between all the classes. Now, how many hours are in the, <laughs> in, in the week? You get it? And that means that he was a, a ball of energy and one of his uh, most famous characteristics, like the Masilis Charm says, Zrezus. He was a naturally Zrezus guy. There's no fooling around, no uh, schmancing around. Every minute was used for uh, 
practical purposes. And by the way, somehow he had raised he raised the money for the yeshiva. Okay, now I told you he didn't have to worry about his own family. Now he have to raise the money for all this, and it became very controversial in Hungary because the Frum didn't know what to do with him. He doesn't fit the model. The uh, uh, Rosh Hashim doesn't teach English subjects. <laughs> you can imagine Rav Shach giving class in bio. You know what I'm saying? You know, uh, can you imagine uh, I don't know Chana Wasserman? You know, giving a class in um, you know uh, Latin and uh, Roman history, let alone Hungarian history. Seriously, and he did it. He didn't fit the model. So the others looked like a Martian, like a monkey. And all the other Rabbanim in Hungary in the 1850s and 60s, they said, what's going on over here? Now, the problem was, he was 100% from. Not only 100% from, he was a tzaddik, a chassid. So, you know, he did a lot of chumras on his personal life and a uh, very big honor of. It's famous that, you know, he wouldn't, uh, didn't want people to stand up for him, so whenever he walked in the basement, he always carried a safer. You know, all those kind of stories you hear about. He wouldn't let a student get a book for him. He always ran up and got himself because he was naturally was an extremely energetic type of person. He had good health and he used every ounce of the health. So basically, why do I call this Hasidus Rizis? You're using every ounce of what you have, your brain, your body, everything. So that's really, really. So see what I'm saying? This guy you could talk about for many hours. And uh, on the other hand, in Hungary, Lemuri Choshebi Yasser. And, and and first of all, a guy to go to college, it really, really bothered him. You have a, a Rav and a Rosh Hashiva, and it's a PhD. You know, like, oh, what is all that? And on the other hand, they couldn't figure out, you can't find nothing I'm from about him. Now, that doesn't stop from his, from saying Loshan Hart. There's a whole a whole group of what I would call the extreme right wing of the Hassam Silver students. Because the Hassam Silver had many, many students. And he had a left wing, a middle wing, and a right wing. That's a whole discussion by itself. But he certainly did. And they used to fight each other. And the extreme right wing was like Ravil Kolomayer and his son-in-law, Kiva Yosef Schlesinger. These are famous names from yesteryear. And uh, they said he's a Michal Shabbos, and he's a this, and he's a that. And, you know, he's a, it's like a chazer. You know, what, what's the expression? With, uh, uh, he, has clo- uh, he has a cloven host, but he doesn't do the cut. You know, all those kind of languages. The kind of Pashkavilim that we're familiar with from Israeli from politics were flourishing about him. On the other hand, there a lot of Rabbanim went to visit to see for themselves, and they came back and said, I can't make any sense out of it. And because the guy's like super from, on the other hand, he's also, and he, and he gave, like I say again, you have a, 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 a Bakiya Shir, well, we all know what that is. An Ian Shir in Hungary is the case of Nivcher system, in which you have the Sugis. Okay? I've mentioned this before. And it's very fascinating. It's a wonderful safer, which was published at that time, in the 1820s, Kesef Nivchar, in which the Chabadir, who was a rabbi exactly of this type in Bohemia, the old school, uh, in which you take the, the, the classic sugis, he's got a hundred of them, and, you know, you organize them in a certain way, and the, the, the sheer Ian consists of going through all the uh, uh, basic sources, I don't know, Trey, Trey, Migo, Rove, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right, uh, whatever you want, and uh, one after and after another, and uh, you know you have to know this Gemara followed by that one, followed by this Tosis, by that Rashba, and then you have to do the other Gemara and so on and so forth. Very well organized, and the Shear consists of going through the Makoras, and as you do, it's interactive. 
So no, the Rav is going through the Mekoros. But of course, you'll see, you know, Kashes you can raise and Terutzim you can give and the students are, are, are part and parcel of it. And he was 100% a rabbi because this was his natural environment. And it's very famous that in the beginning, when he came to Eisenstein, set up the yeshiva, the police were called several times because they heard the screaming and thought it's a riot or something like that. But it was just a sheer. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of thing. And he had a big uh, uh, base medish or whatever, and it was screaming for coming from the outside. And people thought, it's a fight going on. It was just a, a, a sheer, which goes to show you he's that type, that he was screaming and they were screaming, and he said this and they said that. It was live as Hatzik Gekacht. He was a good market sheer, and his students fell in love with him. This is one of the points I want to bring out. What's interesting about him, he's not like Sam Stravelers. He was not a good speaker at all, and he was not a good writer at all. That's not where his talents were. He spoke, and he wrote, and all the rest of it, but that ain't, you know, in, in those areas, Rav Hirsch totally outshined him for a whole bunch of reasons. But it was a Rebbe, with uh, Kalminim, and uh, he's the kind of Rebbe that, you know, forms a Kesha with the student, it stays for life. And that's, like, super important. Um, because there are many people, even today, they go through a whole school and a whole system, all the rest of it, and they never click with a Rebbe. That's the, the big tragedy. You never click with anybody. Uh, if you click with somebody along the way, or especially with more than one, and you really form a, a lifelong Kesha, then you got something to show. Right? And uh, this is who he was. He, was, he wasn't a Rebbe. They used to call him the Rebbe. You know, not, you know, not a Rebbe. Like you understand, if anybody's here who's been lucky enough to have what I just described, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Those of you who have not been lucky, so you just won't understand what I'm talking about unless, you know, you look at someone else over there. And this became his outstanding, in my opinion, my opinion, this became his outstanding characteristic. And he taught to the end of his life. So imagine from 1851 to like 1899, you know what I mean, something like that. It's a good 40-some years of, um, of constant teaching, uh, in which you have generation after generation of guys that go through it. I don't say everybody hooked up with him, uh, clicked with him, but many did, many did. And uh, therefore, in his school, in his yeshiva, you go through, you know, the yeshiva curriculum as it would be. You know, as you go through Kesev Nefkar, all the classic sugyas, or how many you do over five, six years. And uh, at the same time, you also take courses, <laughs> you know, that, that will allow you, let me put it this way, you take courses that enable you to take the SATs, or whatever they call it over there, uh, like a GREs, which were administered by the government, and so uh, and if you pass those uh, uh, tests, you got your BA. Yeah, uh, and uh, this is unique. So a guy finished over there with a smicha and at least a BA, which in, and and in Germany the BA was like the MA. No, you go right to a university if that's what you wish to do, and there was nothing like it. Now when he started, all the people screamed that this is Trafe and all the rest of it. Uh, but it built up. He started with six students, ended up with 130, and which was pretty large in, in those days. And here's my main point. I remember reading this. A lot of big rabbinim in Hungary, the Oberlander types, uh, who criticized them, eventually they sent their kids there. I happen to recall this. The kids of Shalonar, you know, he sent this kid to learn by uh, by there. And uh, I think the Marm Shik, maybe I'm wrong about that, but some, you know, some big name Hungarian rabbis, or maybe it was a Rehuda Assad or something, they sent their kids to learn by him, which clearly means to me 
that these kids must have had like a, a little bit rebellious, maybe, or something like that. And uh, they figured, well, if you'll send it to him, you know, it'll work out good. And it did. So uh, uh, imagine they're from 1850s, 1860s. Uh, he's, he's, this is what he's doing all day long. Now, um, as I said before, all the other abundant country guys, it's a very famous story. I don't know if it's true or not. It's one of those stories that they always tell. It's a, a classic. And uh, it was that some big Hungarian rov uh, came to Eisenstadt to check him out. And um, uh, and he, he watched him and he came to me. So I guess, you know, we were talking about you. I see you're a really from guy. And you're telling me, how do you do it? You know what I'm saying? No, it's how do you do it? You find time to, 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 to learn the Lemuri Chol and the Lemuri Kosh and you give a pilpul shear. And all that. how do you do it? And the answer famously was the time you spent talking about me, that's why I put into the extra classes. <laughs> In other words, if you look for, if, if you're really able to be efficient, use every minute, you can, you can do it. Now, um, he got students from all over the world. Uh, the, I'm in Baltimore, the uh, first modern Orthodox rabbi in, in Baltimore, so called the Chizik which today is conservative, but started as Orthodox, was a Henry Schneeberger. He's the first American born rabbi. Born in this country in the 1840s, I think. And this guy, Schneeberger from New York, he went to Eisenstadt in Hungary to learn under Hildesheimer. He was a Talmud of Hildesheimer. And eventually got a doctor. He was a rabbi of a show in Baltimore. You know, nothing special. But my point is, like, he's a firm guy. Now, somebody from New York went to the Hungary to learn in the 1860s or something? Yes. The answer is yes. So he got students from all over the place. And if you were looking for real term in Derek Hart's curriculum, I'll, I'll use the term the early YU. Um, that's where you went. Because there was no other place in the world like this. Uh, it's a YU before there was a YU. But it's not Yeshiva University. Because Yeshiva University, the Rosh Hashivas don't give, don't give the English classes, right? Here, it's Hungarian. The same Rav gives all the classes. By the way, he does the Bechinas, because the system in Hungary was Friday and Saturday and Sunday or something like that. Everybody was called in for Bechina as part of being the Rosh Hashivah in the Hungarian system. So, you know, you, you, you have to know the, the basic Bechia, so, so and so many days a week you're going ahead. And then I forget how they exactly allotted it. So and so much time is for formal Chazara. And there's Chazara and the Bekiah is a Chazara and the Ian. The Chazara and the Bekiah is what it is. You know, they'll come and you have a formal test in which they ask you four, five, six questions. The Rashiva, you know, uh, on the Bekiah, right? You know, who said what to what? What's the Sephara of this that, and the other? And then you have a a, um, a Bechina, oral Bechina, on the Ian. What does that mean? Here we are in the Sugi of Amigo. How many Shittas Rishonim are there? And what are they? Sidur Hashittas, as they call it, right? What's Rashi holding? What's this one holding? That one holding. They didn't go so much in the Bechina, they didn't ask you, like, w- explain the Machlok between the Rajba and the, and the Rambam. Like, that's a Dalam. That wasn't quite what the, what the system was. But you have to know what the Rajba says and what the Rambam says. Uh, like I said before, if you were to all interest in what I'm talking about, you get a hold of the same Kes of Nechar, you'll see. It's a wonderful book. I like it very much. Now, um, here, the problem was as follows. Hungary in the 1850s, and especially in the 1860s, was a cooking place. Uh, Hungary was a separate kingdom within the Austrian Empire. 
but they revolted against the Austrians in 1848 and 49, and without going into too many details, the rebellion was suppressed. And then uh, Hungary was uh, ruled directly by the Austrians in a way that the Hungarians didn't like. And as the 1850s, especially 1860s went on, this was a very, the Austrians didn't feel comfortable with this either, because nobody likes to be hated, you know what I mean? And this is Franz Josef was the emperor at that time. This is the early years of Franz Josef. And um, there's a, a lot of politics going on. I mean, it's a whole discussion by itself. The Jews in Hungary had been accused by Franz Josef when he became emperor at the age of 18 of being participants in the rebellion. And he put a big knas on them. And after this money was raised, then he turned around to more favorable towards the Jews. And he said, you can use this money that was raised already to found a rabbinical seminary to train modern rabbis. And they thought it would be good. But the Orthodox freaked out. and said, don't do a modern seminary. That's like reform, conservative. That'll be a, a poison. And this was a big fight in the 1850s, 1860s, what to do with that sum of money. The firm on the one side, the modern ones like the Neologs, which is the Hungarian version of reform. Maybe conservative Judaism is a better way of describing it. And uh, so, you know, a lot of internal Hungarian Jewish politics alongside the internal Hungarian politics. And then Franz Josef was defeated in, in a war in 1866. So, uh, without giving too many details, let's put it this way. The, 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 there was a famous Ausgleich, they call it Compromise, of 1867, when it was decided in negotiations between the Austrians and the Hungarians, that Hungary will, give, will be given a large degree of, not independence exactly, but autonomy. So, except in the area of the army and foreign policy and, and the currency, uh, Hungary can totally run its own affairs. And that's what happened between 1867 and the First World War. Hungary was really an internally independent country, and the Hungarian demagogues took over, and uh, they were lib the, the leadership was 19th century liberal, which means you're opposed to religious discrimination based of, of religion. And uh, the, the, new, the newly independent, if I can call that, Hungary, wanted to get its act together, and they organized the Catholic religion and the Protestant religion, and they told the Jews, organize the Jewish religion, in some way, they could be a normal, like a European uh, denomination and have the proper relations with the government and the society and all the rest of it. And we'll give you the money to, to use for a seminary or Jewish educational purposes. And so there was called in 1868-69 a National Congress of all the Hungarian Jews. Every, every community in Hungary was supposed to send delegates to this Congress in Budapest in which they'll decide how to organize a Jewish religion. Well, this was a gigantic battle, because the firm freaked out. They said the, that the non-firm were going to try to, to force them into a straitjacket. It'll be a non-firm straitjacket. The non-firm did want to do that, but on the other hand, they said, you know, the government wants to do it and play fair, and we'll compromise and all that. The firm said, there's no compromise with you. Well, I'm not right. Maybe there is a way to compromise. Meaning, you understand what I'm saying? Without giving up anything from, is there a way to have a national Jewish organization which can accommodate both in some fashion or another? Well, you can go that route, or you can say, uh, to hell with the other side, they can all drop dead, and it's from or nothing. Halonu ata olitzarenu, in the famous slogan of the, uh, of the Chassam Silver. And so feelings were very high. There's a whole book on this, if you're interested, by Jacob Katz, called Hakar Shalon the on. Uh, 
I forget what the English title is. Uh, and uh, it's a very famous episode in Jewish history. And I remember <laughs> the first day they had together the big Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Love. He says the first uh, item on the agenda when all the Congress met together, they were forced to meet together in one big Congress. In other words, they have a big hall with all Jewish delegates of all different types. And he said everything should be run according to the Shulchan Aruch. And they voted that down. Because the way the government had rigged the vote, the, the non-from had a disproportionate numbers. You understand? Because really, 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 it was more or less 50-50, something like that. 50% from, 50% not from. That's really how it went. But the way the government organized it, it was more like 75-25. So it didn't really reflect the split in the population among the Jews. Like I say, that's a whole partial by itself. And uh, <laughs> and then Rabbi Yermia Leif took the new reform, or new, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, sitter that they just published, and he basically spit it on and threw it on the ground and stepped on it. Well, all hell broke loose and fistfights broke out, you know. Let's put it this way. It wasn't a scene of Jewish harmony and uh, and goodwill, which is totally understandable. Now, um, in the midst of all this, the Orthodox, as I said before, were really carried away by what I would call the right wing. And I don't mean the extremists. The predominant feeling among the from in Hungary was the heck with the reform, or the neologue as they call them, and which have nothing to do with them whatsoever, and they're trade from top to bottom, and there's nothing to talk about. I, they weren't exactly reformed. They were actually conservative. And in many areas, they were willing to follow the halacha. And so, if your agenda is to work something out, it was possible to do so. Okay? It was possible to do so. I'm not going to go through all the details. That's not what the firm wanted to hear. <laughs> they felt like this. Either you're firm or you're not. And if you're not, drop dead. Drop dead. And we don't have anything to do with you. Now, the reason I'm going through all this is Hildesheimer was from the left wing. He said, it's possible to work something out with them. I'm, of course, opposed to reform and anything that's uh, that's also. On the other hand, if we get a whole cholesterol type of attitude over here and we get what we need out of them, it's possible there could be a joint Jewish um, organization in Hungary. Again, making sure it's totally... Uh, you know, uh, exceeding to our needs, and that we're not uh, discriminating the budget and anything like that. And notice, hundred percent that the firm needs are are met. However, the rabbonim in Hungary, the big ones, the Ksav Sofer, no, well, I shouldn't say Ksav Sofer. He was like half an hour, but the Marm Shik and people like that, they said that ain't the way to go. You have to, uh, you know, uh, draw a line. Uh, you're on this side, you're on that side. If you're on the other side, drop dead. Uh, and so, in all this. The uh, the Pashkavilan and the literature was very bitter, and Hildesheim was very strongly attacked. It's a basically you're, you're a stalking horse for the reform. You get it? You realize you do maybe you're a useful idiot. You understand? That's what you are at the best. At the worst, you're you're really a secret reformer. Now, all I can tell you is that if you even if it's a lie, and of course, obviously, it was a lie, uh, a from guy doesn't like to be attacked from from the right even if the right is full of it. It's just a very uncomfortable position. You don't want to be seen insufficiently from. Oh, my time's running. Let me just stop over here and fix my um, recorder for a second. Uh, here we go. Anyway, um, I think this connects with the other one. What was I saying? 
Oh, yeah, about the Hungarian Jewish Congress of 1868, 1870 was. Uh, the Ksav died in the middle of it, by the way. Anyway, um, nobody likes to be attacked for being too modern, even if it's not true. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and it made him feel very uncomfortable. And uh, not only that, I know exactly what's going on. Nobody can stand, you know, let's put it this way. Nobody's as good as the Haredim when it comes to Lashon Har and Fashmutzing the Panamina and make up things. They can say terrible things about you. And uh, either you're, you're built with an iron skin, you know, you don't care about it, or it gets under your skin. And it got under his skin. Even though what they said about him were lies. And to tell you the truth, some of the big rabbis, like Akiva Yosef Schlesinger, who, who blasted him later on, they, they themselves were attacked for being, you know, left winger. No, there's, there's always somebody to the right of you. And uh, they had sorts in their lives. But anyway, it made him feel uncomfortable. Now, because uh, he said you could actually have, I'm trying to remember how it went. He said you could have a seminary provided, you know, it's a modern Orthodox seminary. And the elder of him said, oh, we don't want no modern Orthodox seminary. You know, God forbid it should be YU. And, uh, you know, we only want, uh, you know, a yeshiva, totally altar psychotic. It got into all kinds of fights and situations. Now, what happened eventually was, that the right wing won, and in 1870, uh, it's a long story, and now it's not the time to go through the whole story. The main Hungarian guy that was supporting the left wing, Baron Utvash, a famous person, he died suddenly, and the new guy didn't care that much. And what finally happened was that the, that the, it was, became clear to all that there's no room for common ground in Hungary between the from and the not from, at least the great majority of that the from. And so what happened was that they ended up having, the government uh, ended up acknowledging and recognizing legally two religions. There's something called the Jewish religion, and there's something distinct from that called the Orthodox Jewish religion. And the, uh, the left-wingers, I mean the uh, neologues, the conservative reform, they were horrified. They said, there is no such thing like that. Orthodox Jews is a branch of Judaism. Right? Orthodox Jews is a branch of Judaism. Judaism has all types. They always have. And uh, maybe not in the form of reform and conservative exactly, but they've always had different branches, you know, and people who saw differently. But there was Karach and there was Moshe, you know what I mean? There's always been different forms. Uh, and the Frum said, I guess, that's not true. Uh, what you're doing is, is Api courses and beyond Api courses, beyond Api courses. And therefore, there's nothing in common whatsoever between you and us. Uh, Mr. Hershey, in uh, point of view, Later on, as you know, and uh, in fact, Sam Stanville Hirsch was actually working behind the scenes in all this. That you see from the book that I mentioned before, the Jacob Katz book. But anyway, leaving that aside, leaving that aside, uh, it became the way in Hungary that there are two separate religions, and therefore, uh, wherever you go, there are two shoals, you know. There's this shoal and there's that shoal. There's the, the, the Neolog shoal and there's the Orthodox shoal. And there were some Jews who felt like Hellesheimer that they should all stay one Gehel. They became known as status quo, status quo. And the Frum held the status quo one Frum, and the, even though they were, that's a whole big thing by itself. I think I must have talked about this last summer when I was doing podcasts from when I was visiting Budapest and places like that. Uh, this is what happened. Now, what happened to our hero? As a result of all this, he saw that even though, in his opinion, the way of the future to be Makar of most of the Frum is to go the route of modern orthodoxy. 
Again, I don't use the word unorthodox in the American sense. I'm talking about the way he understood it. In which case you'll have what we have in America today, basically, which is day schools, you know, with English and Hebrew or secular and Hebrew. But this was considered too controversial in Hungary. During that time, and this is the famous part of his career, he was invited to come back to Germany to be the rabbi of the Frum element in Berlin. And he took the job. So he left Hungary and started an entirely new career. This is in 1869. Mom's the middle of the whole business. So what was going on in Germany was the following. Unlike Hungary, where there was a strong Frum element, in Germany there wasn't. The Orthodox, they were pretty weak. You know, Hirsch was trying to do his thing in Frankfurt with a certain amount of success, but that was unusual. Elsewhere, the Orthodox are pretty weak. And Berlin, which was the largest community, uh, had always had, a, a, a like everywhere else, a right wing, a left wing, and a middle wing. And in Berlin, it's too long to go into this. Berlin, the question was, who should be, be out base? And, you know, the chief rabbi of the community. By the time I'm talking about it, in the, as the 1800s went on, it's a long, long story, but this is the rise of reform. Uh, you know, the, the question was, what should be the position of the official community in Berlin? And uh, basically, they wanted conservative, as we would call it in America today. That's what they want. And the conservative 19th century was pretty doggone traditional. Uh, but it was always a very divisive issue. And uh, uh, let's put it this way. For a long time, they had this guy, Rabbi Michael Sachs. He was the official rabbi of the Berlin Jewish Committee, this large Jewish committee. Uh, Michael Sachs, what we would call today, right, uh, uh, how should I put it, right-wing conservative, left-wing orthodox, something like that. You know, what do they call these guys? Uh, you know, they broke away from the conservative, uh, I forget what it's called, you know, with Weiss Halivni, yeah, he was that type. Uh, Michael Sachs, I know it's not a name you ever heard of, but guess what? You know, the Hirsch Synagogue, Hirsch was the second candidate. The, 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 the Jews in Frankfurt from the Hirsch Shoal, uh, they first offered it to Michael Sachs. He just, uh, it, it wasn't a good shit. And when Michael Sachs didn't work out, then they took Shimshofel Hirsch. Uh, so so Hashkavas were very confused, as we would say today, uh, in, that, in the middle of the 19th century. When Michael Sachs died... So they elected as the chief rabbi of um, Berlin, Abraham Geiger, who was the Avia He was the leading reform rabbi. And, uh, and they built a, a Mamisha temple, you know. And uh, the, the, let's put it this way, the Orthodox are very offended. The Orthodox minority. And they kind of, you know, wanted to make their own community. And uh, they invited Hilsheimer. Now, understand this well. These are the Orthodox Jews in uh, Germany, right? These are Orthodox Jews in Germany. Uh, they're not learned or anything like that. Uh, they are unusual type. Uh, they were traditionalistic. Um, they weren't very educated. They knew what they didn't like. But there was no question that they're all in favor of a college education, to use American terminology. You know, you have to be modern. And, and a mensch, somebody normal. And so where are you going to find an Orthodox rabbi who's a, who's a Gaba rabbi who could compete against Geiger and uh, is also an a person with education? Hilsheimer. And so they said like this, come to Berlin and we're forming a separate community called the Das Yisrael. And that's where you get the Das Yisrael uh, name a lot. 
and uh, you beat her off. And uh, of course, it helped the fact that he doesn't need a salary, correct? <laughs> that never hurts. Because uh, he made it clear he's not coming for a salary. Uh, and his, by the way, Mechatanim, the family, his wife's family, they're delighted. Their brother-in-law now, but he's chief rabbi of Berlin, at least of the Orthodox. And that's what he did. He moved to uh, Berlin. And so he left Hungary. You get it? He said, this is not a good shidduch for me. And many have written about the fact that it's funny. Somebody who was considered a left-winger in Hungary was considered a very extreme right-winger in Germany because the matzah was very different. And he stayed there for the rest of his life for the next 30 years until he died. So here's a different career. He was going to, if things had turned out the way he wanted, he would have spent his entire life in Hungary, in Oberland, notice on the extreme end, the western part of Hungary, as a row of one of the Sheva Kehillas, uh, and so on and so forth. And I can tell you, after he left uh, uh, Eisenstadt, the next rabbi was a right-winger. was not like him at all. You know, it was regular from, from Rav, like you would imagine. You know, Hungarian, totally yeshivish. Uh, but in Berlin, where things were, uh, where Judaism was in a, in, in a bad state, and the Orthodox were completely, uh, what's the right word, you know, disorganized and, and anemic and whatever. So, uh, a guy like him coming in was like a big shot in the arm. I'll use the following terminology. It's like they got Samson Raphael Hirsch to be the rabbi in Berlin. Something like that. And that's where he spent the rest of his life. Now, the thing is, when he came there again, he immediately re realized that it's all about the youth. Because uh, the older generation will die out. How are you going to get the youth? It wasn't possible, in his opinion, to imitate exactly what he had done in Hungary. Because the conditions were different. So he did work from day one to make an uh, uh, elementary school, as we would say today, up to the eighth grade. And, uh, and they did do it. He was never able, in his time, to make Mamasha High School uh, the way he would like it, you know, like we have in America. The best you could do over there uh, was to uh, have like a Talmud Torah. Those, the boys go to regular public schools in the morning, the boys and the girls, and then in the afternoon, for, I don't know, two, three hours, something like that, they have high school level uh, Limudi Kodesh. Right? Limudi Kodesh. Uh, fine. Uh, that's not great, okay? But see, that's the best it was. And you have to understand that this is Germany in the 19th century. This is Europe. Public schools on Shabbos. And you got to go. You got to go. The question was, how do you get around writing? And, you know, a lot of kids did write, you know, right or wrong, correctly, incorrectly, this is the way it went. And how do you carry your books to school? I mean, this is a whole world which most of us are not familiar with. Um, but that's what happened. Now, uh, it's separate from that, though. He said like this, but I don't want to stop the yeshiva. But it's Germany. You, you can't exactly have a yeshiva. There was a yeshiva, believe it or not, that had always been in existence, in Berlin, left over from the 1700s when some rich guy had left a Kloys, you know, a, a Karen Kayemis. It was a small, anemic-type situation. There were two uh, rabbis there. If you were from from the very, very, they had probably 15, 16 kids, you know, students. If you were from the very, very few that was interested in learning, there were two uh, rabbis that were there. Rosengarten was one and others. And, uh, you know, they gave Shiwarim. Uh, you can find from the 1840s, 50s, 60s, a few people that learned, as we say, 
in Berlin. Hildesheimer says, I want to go a different route. Now, listen closely. When the community took the leading reform rabbi, Abraham Geiger, to, who had been the, the classmate of the roommate in college of Samson of Hirsch. Like I say, Geiger was the biggest Talmud Chacham among the, the uh, Reform, the biggest Talmud Chacham, and he was really Avi Avos that told me it was bad news. And Geiger also had, in his way, the idea of wanting to be a Rosh Hashiva in the Reform style. And he had earlier been a rabbi in Breslau in East Germany, and he had agitated to start a, a Jewish theological seminary, but when it, they finally did so, uh, they gave it to someone else, and it, it drove him crazy. Because uh, he wanted to be the head, and he should be the Magad Shir of the Reform, and he should train the future rabbis in his image, and so on and so forth. So when he came to Berlin, it was on condition that the community would bankroll a Reform theological seminary for the training of Reform rabbis. And this really scared people, because he was a Gavarab in his way. Larav, but he was a Gavarab, he was. Uh, very impressive intellectual of a certain weird sort, and uh, he could do it. You know what I mean? He would he would put the reform like on a very dynamic basis. So when Hildesheimer came and he said like this, basically, this is a challenge. The firm cannot uh, uh, stand back from the challenge. If he's making a trafe seminary, we have to make a kosher seminary. If he's going to make a Jewish theological seminary, or, or as they call it, a, a a higher institution for Jewish studies. Hochschule for the Wissenschaft des Judentums in German. So we have to do the same thing, but on a firm basis. Which means we have to match them. If they're going to have a seminary which involves students going to college and uh, having a first-class secular education, plus also getting uh, classes in Jewish subjects, we have to do the same thing, but in a firm way. And that's what he did. And so he said to fight the reform... Um, and anyway, he wanted to do this. I want a yeshiva, but they won't call it yeshiva, they call it rabbinical seminary. Okay? Because the term yeshiva, even among the from, if you're very modern, uh, I say again, from, yeshiva has like, eh, looks like a bunch of kvetchers, uh, batlanim, losers, poor, sleeping on the floor, bad manners. These are all the uh, connotations that the word yeshiva had. Now today, you and I live in a different world. It's the, this cultural thing I just described has been completely transformed, right? But you have to take yourself out of the world that I'm talk, we live in today because 150 years have gone by and put, your, put yourself in a completely different environment of yesteryear, the 19th, early 20th century, and yeshiva was considered a loser operation and a seminary was considered very chashev and very respectable. And so when he said he's going to call his school, which was a kind of yeshiva, they call it seminary, um, and it's going to modify it accordingly, it was considered a very big plus for the Orthodox. The firm in Eastern Europe didn't know what to do with it, but, you know, they said, it's Hildesheimer's a big Talmud Chacham, and he's a firm guy, so Germany's nuts, you know, <laughs> so just let them do their thing. And he founded the Orthodox Rabbinical Seminary in Berlin, which lasted until Hitler, okay? Um, so that means that in Berlin, there were two advanced institution, the highest institution for learning. Uh, one was Reform, one was, one was um, Orthodox. One was headed by Geiger, one was headed by uh, Hildesheimer. But then Hildesheimer got a break because 
Geiger unexpectedly dropped dead in like 1872, like a year after he started. You know, a year after he started, he just dropped dead. And uh, this, the school he founded never got off the ground, really. There was a reform seminary, no question about it, down to Hitler's time. It was never dynamic. You see? It, it didn't turn into the type of thing it would have been had Geiger lived. People came after him were like pedestrian, you know. On the other hand, the Orthodox seminary did take off. And he founded and ran to the end of his life what he called the, 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 uh, the Rabbinical Seminary of Berlin, the Orthodox Rabbinical Seminary, which was unique because it was like a six or seven year program to get smicha. Now, a yeshiva officially is not supposed to be a place to go for smicha. You know that. It's supposed to be for Torah Lishma. At the end, you might get smicha, you might not. You know, or everybody's different. But it's, the purpose is not to make it uh, a base charoshis l'arabonim, a, a rabbi factory. On the other hand, let's cut the baloney. A lot of people go to yeshiva, they want to get smicha. And a lot of people go to yeshiva and they want to be, for, to be rabbis. You understand? So this has always been the modern conundrum. How much professional training do you give a guy? Uh, that all depends on the kind of show you're going to have. Um, if you have a very from show, yeshiva sh- uh, show, you don't need any secular education whatsoever. And the uh, fact of the matter is, you can, uh, as long as you're big Tamil Chacham, you can give shurim and uh, shots and postkim and things like that. And it doesn't matter if you're a great orator or anything of that nature. On the other hand, you might have a congregation, which is not like that. In which case, they don't need the Kisosa and the Nasibas, and will never come up. But they do need a person that uh, has rabbinical skills, I don't know, whatever you call it, you know, uh, sermon skills, uh, pastoral skills, uh, you know, that sort of thing. How to deal with youth, right? How to, how to interact with the organized youth groups. A lot, of, a lot of things like that. Participate in community affairs, Depends on the show, right? Depends on the show. And um, he obviously was, there were tons of synagogues in which they're not super yeshiva. In fact, the vast 99% was not like that. You don't have too many shows in Germany and west of Germany in which it's yeshivish. How would you? You have Balbatic situations. And so he said like this, that requires a six-year program, maybe a seven-year program, in which... You uh, go for, you have Limudi Kodesh for six years in a structured way, meaning like a seminary, the Hainu. It's not just Gemara. There's every day a Shear for two hours or whatever it is in Gemara. That's one class. Then there's another class called Shulchan Aruch, you know, in, in Halakha Lamaisa. That's another class. I'm not finished. Then there's another class called Jewish History because the rabbi has no Jewish history. You know, be able to explain it for the Balapatim, especially in the 19th century, 20th century. They're very interested in that. That's what Jewish identity means to them. And you have to know Damala, Hoshev, Apikaris, and all that. I'm not finished. You have to know a certain amount of Jewish philosophy. You know, can't walk in and say, what's the murder of Uchem? You know, you got to know something. Uh, and a couple other subjects like that. Meaning it's not just Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. In that, re- in that respect, the rabbinical seminary, wherever it was, is a Moskilic institution. From I'm a skilled institution. It's not just Gemara. Uh, and of course, Bible, Tanakh. Well, I forgot that. you got to know this stuff, right? And uh, and all of it will be useful when you're a rabbi in Kehillah, because, like I said before, not to, chances are you're not going to have too many Balabatim who want to know, uh, you know, Dor Sameach, you know, want to know, you know, Chedusha Chaim Alevi. There's nobody to talk to about that, usually. But on the other hand, there is, you have to be able to explain the parsha. 
You know, it's it's not a little thing. And the you don't need lumbus in that kind of um, education. You need sock, correct? You, you get what I'm saying? You have no Hanapask and Shiloh. And and at the worst, who to talk to in order to pask in the Shiloh? Because you know the lumbus is not going to play a, a a big role in this. I'm talking about Yeshiva Shalom, there was not no Gela, Allah, Lamaisa. So, therefore, the learning has to be very much focused in the area of Asukish Shmaisa, Libid Even though at the same time, he wasn't built that way. He was a Posik, and he had Shalos and Shuvas, and he certainly knew that, and he gave his Shulchanar class. But in the Ian class, he liked the Lumdas, he liked the Pilpul. That's, that's just who he was. You understand? Personally, that, that's who he was. And so was his student, uh, Hoffman. Now, anyway, so he made this a seminary. And at the same time, you're going to six-year course in which you're learning Gemara and especially Halach Lamaisa and the type of other classes that hopefully will uh, you know, help you be a successful rabbi uh, and that sort of thing. At the same time, you've got to go get your Ph.D. in college. So you have to, uh, depending where you're holding, uh, you know, if, if you come to seminary with a high school education, so then, you know, you need... Uh, what should I say, four years and four, you know, it takes a, a good six years to knock off the, the doctorate stuff. If you came with a with a better degree, you know, already like with a gymnasium degree, which means you already finished the BA, so uh, you could knock off the doctorate in eh, two years, something like that, and you could spend the next five years more in learning. You see, it all depends who the students were. Uh, now, the interesting thing is, as I told you, Geiger dropped dead, and his seminary never took off that much. It was always pretty small and pretty anemic. That's why the reform movement, as opposed to conservative, the conservative had a separate seminary in Breslau. But the reform—am I giving you too much information? <laughs> the reform, the reform seminary was uh, never really took off much at all, uh, and the reform movement therefore was anemic in Germany, which is just interesting. It's not what people think. Uh, by contrast, Hillesheimer seminary uh, grew fairly popular. Among a certain element. Now, what do I mean popular? At its height, in his time, they had 90 students. That's not a ton, right? But on the other hand, everybody going there is most likely going to be a rabbi. So that's a fair amount. And this seminary became the place that supplied Orthodox rabbis for everybody outside of Eastern Europe, or a lot of them, let's put it that way, okay? Out of Eastern Europe. So, you know, the vast majority of communities in Germany and in, uh, you know, England, America, and, yeah, I don't know, you know, those kind of things. Uh, if they wanted a rabbi who would be what we would call today a from guy, but um, you know, respectable uh, modern Orthodox, uh, again, I'm not using the word modern Orthodox like today, and I'm not talking about Avi Weiss at all, nothing of that whatsoever. Uh, then you went to Hillsheimer. Then you said, can you send us somebody? Can you send us somebody? And uh, let's put it this way. He knew very, very well that for a lot of communities who are not that from, they could go conservative, they could go orthodox. Depends who it is. So you have to have a candidate who will be able to win them over. And um, <laughs> it's famous. You know, a community wrote to him when they said, oh, yes, we're thinking of getting a conservative rabbi. You're getting a, uh, uh, what do you call an orthodox rabbi. Who can you send us? He said, I can send you a guy with a PhD and all the rest of it. They say, you realize we're not from particularly. And he, <laughs> he said famously, he said, I know, the passengers can be drunk, 
but the driver has to be sober. <laughs> We're very German, you know. The coachman must be sober. That is to say, the Rav has to be a Rav. And it's all the difference in the world, if you have, in a community, Orthodox rabbi, conservative rabbi. To use American terminology, is a big difference. No matter how big of a of a of Amaris the rabbi is, if it's Orthodox, you have NCSY. If it's conservative, you have USY. You understand? That, that's what makes all the difference in the world. If it's Orthodox, he'll send him to some kind of yeshiva-type program or something like that. If it's conservative, he'll send him to a conservative program. You know, these are uh, uh, of gigantic importance. And therefore, it was created under Hildesheimer, this surah of a rabbi doctor. Now, the, the secular education was of extreme importance for the following reason. Listen to this closely. At that time especially, especially in Western Europe and places like that, if somebody comes and wants to be a rabbi and uh, guide the people and offer you know, uh, uh, leadership, if he has no secular education and he says, I believe in the Torah and I don't believe in, uh, I don't know, Bible criticism, they'll say, of course not. The guy's a dummy. He has no education. His frumkite simply is a reflection of his ignorance. Doesn't impress us. We went to college. We're doctors, we're lawyers, we're teachers, we're businessmen, this and the other. The rabbi's carrying going, making all these speeches. A kenish, you know? He just went to some yeshiva. And he doesn't know anything. So it doesn't impress us, all of his passion, because it stems from ignorance. Now, let me contrast that. Here we have a rabbi who's a PhD. And he says he should keep Shabbos and uh, believe in the Torah and not believe in the Quran, the Bible, Christians, all that. Well, wait a minute. You can't say he doesn't know. He went to college. He has a doctorate. That's pretty impressive. So you can't say the position he's espousing is because of ignorance. He does know the other side. And Alpha Pekin, he still says, should keep Shabbos. At least that's an intellectual opinion. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give it some uh, uh, consideration. You get it? Notice, he wanted to use, notice those type of guys wanted to use the secular degree, secular knowledge, to serve the purpose of Frumkite. And in fact, his motto was, Behold Rechecho de Ehu. You know, um, and that's what happened. You understand? When they had, people say, like this, well, the rabbi's a very educated person. He's very orthodox. Okay, there must be a position like that. It's something to look into. And uh, this was a tzura, okay? And this was the rabbi doctor of yesteryear. Now, people say, I guess, well, they don't know how to learn. Some did, some didn't. You know, that could happen in anywhere. Obviously, this was the big problem. You can't put in a lot of time. Let me put it this way. You can't compare this to yeshiva education of that era, in, let's say, Eastern Europe or something like that, in which you did 24-7 gamar, gamar, gamar. So in the yeshivas of old, they were learning to old shas, you know. I mean, dozens of blot at a time. Okay. That is no question about it. That's true. There's a trade-off. And this was the question. But he'll decide it's like this. It's a necessary trade-off. And uh, the rabbi mainly should be equipped with uh, the basic knowledge and the Yerushalayim. And then when you're on the job, you learn. Meaning, you put in the time and cover shas and all that. And a lot of these rabbis did. Some didn't, you know. And all I can tell you is, this was considered the Frum Tzura of the Western model of communities and synagogues uh, from his time in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, early 1900s. Um, it's just interesting. And I can't overemphasize that the culture at that time was one in which somebody with this kind of background was considered superior to somebody who simply went to Yeshiva. Even though today we have a different attitude. 
uh, I'm talking from the Balabatisha point of view, and because of that, they were able to make a fight for orthodoxy, which the other ones would not necessarily be able to do. Right? It's, it's interesting. And it was formed the model of the new type of rabbi. In which case, I'm not saying something negative, I'm saying something positive. The new type of rabbi cannot assume the uh, laid-back stance or the aloof stance of the old rabbi. Once upon a time in Kali's role, a rav doesn't give speeches, he doesn't visit the hospital, he certainly doesn't teach the young, he doesn't go to youth groups. He sits and learns. You know that, I know it. You know, he gives a speech on, on Shabbos HaGol and Shabbos Shua. If he's a real out base and he spends most of the time learning with Talmudim, you know, doesn't really interact with the community. In the modern world, by the time you get to what I'm talking about, if you don't go out and engage with the youth, they'll go off the derech. If you're going to make some kind of a youth group or something like that, they'll go off the derech. If you don't know how to interact with women, they'll go off the derech. If you don't know how to give a good speech, they'll go to a place where there is a good speech if the rabbi is not from. And this is the reality of it. You get it? And uh, uh, and the rabbi has to organize a Hanukkah dinner, and he has to do all the 150 little things that would be inconceivable for, uh, you know, I mean, the know to be a hooter or something like that, right? Because the new world, new world, if you don't do it, won't happen. And a lot of these rabbonim, that's what they did, you know, make a chug, talk, have, have a group of college students over in Shabbos, and talk to them about their issues. This is the new surah of the rabbi, and Hildesheim was not wrong about that, you understand? The most famous example, I'm sure I must have mentioned this, the most famous and classic example is with the girls, because he didn't have a school, he didn't make a bisiaco, but he did have a school in the afternoon, high school for girls, just like he had one for boys, and I remember exactly all the details, but he totally understood necessity for chinuch as they call it today, and it's a very, very renowned story, I'm sure I must have mentioned this earlier, that uh, in the time that he was in Berlin, where Saul Salanter was living there for a while. Saul Salanter, even though he wasn't a typical, but, you know, but he was a typical Eastern European rabbi, and uh, he once came, and they were friends, naturally. Uh, I read a whole story about this, if you're in this, uh, or if somebody wants me, they'll send to him. I don't know, it's one of my storybooks. But anyway, uh, Saul Salanter came to visit him once in some manner at Sarkhi Tzibur, and he walked into the house of Rav Hildesheimer, and he was, went to a, a total shock. <laughs> like at system broke, I went to a shock. Because it was a big uh, dining room, and there's Hildesheimer, who the Rav, I went to Abbasin, uh, of the Kehillah, of the Orthodox community, he was Abbasin. He ran the Basin. He did the Gittin. You know what I'm Besides everything else. And the room was full of girls, and the rabbis went into the table, there's like 50 girls sitting at the table and all uh, sitting all over the room. And he was giving me a class like in Kitsu Shulchanor or something like that. I basically couldn't believe it. You see? Because a Rav, especially in Lithuania, he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't talk to girls, and second, he certainly doesn't teach girls. <laughs> you see? And what is this? They like walk down in a shock, and the story goes, if it's true, the story goes, they, they said, and there are different ways of saying it, but the basic way the story goes was like this. You know, um, I saw... The whole summit, and I understand, you know, nowadays in Germany and all the rest, because he didn't advocate that they should do this in, in Lithuania, where the girls were going after there. That took another 50 years uh, with the Beisiaco and the Yavna, but I'm talking about in the 1870s. And his famous thing was that, uh, you know, I know that Rob Hilsheim is a tzaddik and so forth, and uh, I hope what he, for what he's doing with the girls, I hope I should be lucky enough to sit next to him in Ghanaian or something like that, you know, 
be close to him again. Uh, upper voltage given it later. Put me a rope, a rope, a rope, a rope from the rabbinus. A rope gavar from the rabbinus. If he was rabbi in Lithuania, they would fire him from rabbi because you don't do that. You see, and it's a different culture. You get it? Now I repeat. Fifty years later, things changed after the First World War, and chinuch abonis became a big thing. And nowadays, it's a you will find what I just described a rabbi giving a cheer for a whole bunch of girls. So you know he was like uh, a forerunner of modernity in this particular regard. He's so different in every aspect. Now, because one of the things he did was um, he set up this seminary, but it cost money. Now. If worse came to worse, I maybe he could hit on his relatives, his rich uh, mechutanim. But he wasn't built that way. And uh, therefore, he said, I guess I'm going to raise my own money. And he became famous. for He raised all the money. See, he was you know, the fundraiser for the Shiva as well as the Russia Shiva, which is a very Hungarian thing. The Rav used to do that in Hungary. And he went all over Europe. Uh, and therefore, he became famous because people got to meet him. And since he was not a poor man, the opposite, so he would come to a city, you know, London and Paris and Budapest and this place, even in Russia, he went to Russia, can't believe it, and he said like this, I'm here to raise money, and I'm going to go to the five richest guys in town. I'm not interested in chicken feed and nickels and dimes, I want serious contributions. And he would run in, he would, and he would meet a rich guy, and basically the rich guy knew this guy's as rich as he is, you know, thanks to his wife. And if they treat him with a, a more respect, and I'm running not just a uh, regular shiva, but it's a rabbinical seminary where they have secular as well. The thing is different, I need more money. And he got it. He got it. And so he was a very successful fundraiser. He used to call himself, he's a Weltschnarrer. <laughs> the Schnarr goes all over the Welt. As a result, he was very often on, on the road. Um, I don't know how he did it with his uh, shiurim and all the rest of it. He had it worked out. And uh, he left, uh, let, let's put it this way. He always left a tremendous Kiddush Hashem behind him, which is just interesting. Which is just interesting. Now, um, it's uh, most unusual. Uh, there are many stories. I remember reading a book years ago when the Hebrew College was still around by this old German guy. And it's such a Yekisha, uh, uh story. And it's ridiculous. But it's, it's totally possible. It's a very Yekisha story. Now, Hildesheim used to go on the road a lot. Uh, either raising money for the school. Sometimes he did it for Stadlonis, you know, dealing with the government. He, since he was in Berlin, the German government, by the time he came there, it was right when they had the Franco-Prussian War, and then Bismarck created the Imperial Germany, which was the United States of the different German states in the one empire, and Berlin was the capital. So Berlin was super Khashiv at that time, and the Imperial German government knew he's the leading Orthodox rabbi, you know, him and Hirsch. And so if they ever had issues, you know, uh, they dealt with it. There are many stories about that, and uh, even though I'm tempted, I'm not going to give you the stories. Uh, and there's a famous thing that he was always on the road, and a lot of times for Stadlonis and so forth, you know, to help Jew Jewish situations. And um, how's it go? This is a good story. This is how the Yekis tell the story. This What I'm telling you was written 100 years ago. And he said that he always had a, um, uh, in case there should ever be any kind of Shabbos issues, he should always uh, carry with him like a little Shabbos kit in his in his um, suitcase. Because he's a guy who's always on the road. He always has a suitcase, you know, with his clothes and uh, luggage. And one time he was supposed to go to a certain place. And there was a problem with the train. 
as coming near Shabbos. And he said, the heck with it. I'm getting off at this little village because it's going to be Shabbos. Even though there's nothing Jewish in the area whatsoever, he'll, he'll manage somehow or other. And he got off with his, uh, people didn't know him. He was alone. And he got off with a suitcase or two. And immediately said, any Jews around here? And they said, uh, and there's one old Jewish guy, some old jerk, who lived in a, um, if I remember, a, in a windmill or something like that. And they called a Jewish guy, who was a real jerk, an old Yekish, you know, not from at all, zero. And he says, a Jewish guy here is a rabbi, and uh, he wants to take him for Shabbos, and he's all muttering, and he said, the hell with this, and so forth. And he took him, so basically, he said, you spend Shabbos at this Jewish guy's house, in the windmill. And <laughs> it's just, you can make a little movie, a, a TV show out of this. Hey, this guy's alone. He was a, a loner. It was uh, Hildesheimer, the leading rabbi in Germany. And this, I remember the story was, the way the guy wrote the story, he says, nobody knows what happened, but by the time Shabbos was over, you know, he was a changed man, and he carried the rabbi's things back to the uh, train and all that. Meaning he left this kind of Roshim on people, and many people write about that. Because he was honest as the day is long, he didn't need any money, he was totally the same Shemayim, um, and he was and he was no baloney. He was very, uh, as I say, tuchtig all the time. You know, he's always uh, working on on um, on these. How should I put on, on these projects? You know, uh, which were l'shem shemaim. Now, in addition to what I just said, he was a big baltzadarka, meaning he he went around a lot, raising money for charitable purposes, and he helped a lot of poor people. He also got involved in international Jewish affairs, which means that time Palestine stuff, anti-missionary stuff. Uh, he's famous nowadays for being one of the few guys interested in the Ethiopian Jews, which at that time nobody knew about and cared about. He said if they're Jewish, which it seems that they might be, then we have to fight against the missionaries, and he raised money for them. So he would come to London, he would come to Paris, he would come to this place or that place, and, uh, you know, uh, Copenhagen, what do you name it? And it, and, and uh, a lot of times he'd be raising money for for the poor. You see or for yeshivas in, in Russia, the, the, the Gedolim would ask him, he said, can you help me out? Or Yitzhak on Spectre used to turn to him a lot. You know, he would, and he, he didn't mind going on the road. Even though you might say, not if you're the same Shemayim. Right? To raise money for somebody else's school, if it's, if it's the real thing, it's Lishma. You know, he, would, he didn't have those kind of hang-ups. A very interesting person in this way. He didn't have those hang-ups. And uh, and he had the energy. He would come to town and, like I said before, not sit around and schmooze, but go hit in the road and raise the money and then leave. So, uh, as a result of this, he became an international figure. An international figure. Now, when he started the seminary, Sam Hirsch was afraid that it might become, uh, again, I'll use modern terminology. Either which way is the seminary going to go? Is it going to become like an Avi Weiss situation or not? Uh, and Hirsch and others criticized aspects of what they saw because they felt that the seminary is not going to be firm enough. Now, understand what I'm about to say well. A huge difference between Shimshavol Hirsch on the one hand and Hillsam on the other was on the attitude towards uh, modern intellectual academic studies. Let's use the word Jewish history. Hirsch was not into Jewish history. He was not Gerber's Jewish history. Now, he knew it, and he references it, 
but he was opposed to the university uh, departments of Jewish studies or what passed for that at that time, which were the conservative mainly and reform. In other words, uh, when Gretz wrote the famous uh, ten-volume history in the 19th century, Herschel like attacked it very heavily, and uh, most of the people you don't know what I'm talking about probably. This is called the Wissenschaft des Judentums. Most of the people that, that started the modern study of the Jewish past, which means you really try to find the original Makaras and uh, not do art scroll biographies, but tell the way it really was, as they would say it. Uh, Herschel was very strongly opposed to them because he said, you're really lying. You're not telling the way it is either. You're putting your anti-firm slant on it. I'm not saying he was wrong. It's a very complicated question. A uh, guy wrote a book on it recently called Bikurus Habikurus, professor in Israel. Uh, in which, I'll say it again, Herschel was very eloquent in being opposed to the modern academic study of Jewish history, which in the 19th century took a lot of time to form of antiquarianism, in which he tried to find little factoids and things like this. Now, to be, I'm in the history business. You need the little factoids. You know, it does matter when the guy was born and where he lived. You can make, the, the firm world is full of bubba mices, and they make up things that just aren't true. I, it's, uh, sorry to say, but that's the way it goes. Yeah, and there are a lot of legends and things like that, and we manufacture them as we speak, just go online. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if history is simply a bunch of little factoids, especially presented by anti-from, so it's very problematic. Now, therefore, Hirsch said like this, I'm against any kind of institution which engages and gives respect to the modern uh, practice of university Jewish history, that sort of thing muscular Jewish history, that sort of thing. Hildesheimer wasn't like that. He said, listen, uh, I'm against art school biographies, therefore, let's try to find the facts. And if you find a non-from book said something right, you can quote it. And if Gretz got something right, you know, a, a, a stop clock is right twice a day. Now, he was very opposed, Hildesheimer was to Gretz and the conservatives, because he said, you know, they're, they're making it look like they're from, they're not from, simply because they don't believe in Termesina. So a lot of flows from that. Uh, so in the essential parts, he agreed with Hirsch. But whether or not uh, Jews in the modern era should regard what we call today Jewish studies, the study of the Jewish past from the uh, modern perspective, get your footnotes right, uh, do your research correctly. Um, he, he said that I'm all in favor of it if it comes out from. And if not, I'll just say I don't agree with this person. Rather than say that the whole thing is treif and taboo. Uh, so really, 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 Hirsch was not into term Derek Harris in the sense of academics, of intellectuality. Hirsch is very, uh, this is a whole subject by itself. Hirsch basically what wanted to keep most people, as we would say today, you know, have your basic education, become a businessman or something like that, and don't deal with all this intellectual kind of stuff. Hildesheim was, uh, was not like that. He said... Uh, uh, the Orthodox should participate in the, in the international Jewish enterprise of uh, studying the, the, what Judaism is from a scientific perspective. Right? We'll, we'll give the from uh, uh, angle of it. And uh, no, So uh, I'll give you the simplest explanation. Say Bible criticism, which you can prove that the Bible is written by ten different people. It certainly doesn't come from God. So Hirsch says, I'm not even going to the whole thing. Why even waste any time on it? And Hildesheimer and his students are like, no, this is a question you have to deal with. You know, what do you do with the proofs that they bring against it? And try to give an answer to it. Now, you're taking a chance because if the answers aren't good, some of the students will go off the derrick. He 
wasn't built that way. He said, I think they'll handle it. And this became like the hallmark of the Hillsheimer's approach. It's very interesting. I'll just give you one example, which is a remarkable story. And that is he had a student. I think I, maybe I mentioned this here once. He had a student who was going to graduate and went to university, all the rest of it. And he was a very good student, too. And Hillsheimer liked him. And he was going to give him smicha. And, and he came to him. It's a yaki. You know? <laughs> you tell it the way it is. And he said, I don't think you can give me smicha. Why can't I give you smicha? You know, I can't say I believe that the McGill assessor is really true, historically. There are arguments this way and that way. And, you know, and therefore I can't be an Orthodox rabbi. <laughs> you can't imagine America a guy would do that, you know. But a German is a German. And would do, you know, you talk to me, yes is yes and no is no. So for me to accept everything. And Hildesheimer, the famous story is Hildesheimer said like this, I'm going to give you smicha anyway. I know you. You're right now, you're going through whatever. But by the time this works itself out, you're, you're, you're going to come up with the, right, with the right approach to Megillus Esther. And it happened. The guy became very, very from rabbi in South Germany. And Fulda, it's a, it's a whole long story. It's connected with the Kultori Shiva. Anyway, that's the reverse of Hirsch, who said, if you write anything that's not from, um, then I suspect you that, you know, that you're basically trafe. And there's a very famous incident where... Um, the main student of Rabbi Hildesheimer was his top student was W.C. Hoffman, who who taught was a was a, a rebbe, a professor, if you want to call it that, at the Hildesheimer Seminary and took over after him. W.C. Hoffman, the famous postic later on, a very fun guy, and Hoffman had a PhD and all the rest of it. He had been a student of his in Eisenstadt back in Hungary and came with him to start the uh, seminary in Berlin. Uh, he had a small staff of, of professors, teachers. One of them was his son-in-law, name was Barth, who was a big expert in Bible criticism. So he could he could uh, slug it up. You understand? It's a this is it's a, it created a whole di- different culture over here. And um, W. C. Hoffman, when he was young, he wrote he went to university and he wrote his dissertation on Shmuel. You know, Rav and Shmuel and the Gemara on Shmuel Shmuel Yachano. Uh, it's a really cool because he called it not the rabbi Shmuel, Shmuel, the head of the rabbinical seminary in Nardea, the <laughs> rector from the rabbinical seminary in Nardea. Now, I don't think Shmuel the Amora called it the rabbinical seminary, but he was trying to, he was writing for Goyim, you know, it was, it was a university doctorate. And in his biography, because it's an academic biography, what do we know about this person, Shmuel? Which, let's face it, from a modern perspective, you don't know anything because there's no outside confirmation there even was such a person. But from 19th century perspective, if you can quote from the rabbinical literature, so how do you mold together a biography from all the different places you find Shmuel, whether in, in uh, you know, in Halacha and Agoda, throughout Shas. That's why it is the uh, It's an interesting subject. He wasn't the first guy who wrote about Shmuel. And so he quotes, he said, Gret says this, I don't agree with it. This one says that, I agree with it. Uh, Nachum Trebish said this, I agree with it. And Hirsch was going crazy. He said, how can you even quote non from people? And he says, just for university dissertation. Yeah, but how can you quote not from people? It's like you gurus them. He says, I'm gurus to what they got right. I clearly argue against them when I think they got it wrong. No, your whole mahalach is wrong. And Hirsch wanted to get him fired. He wrote to Hildesheimer and he said, Do you have people like this? Now I'm from going to teach in university. So I'll say again, according to Shimshof Hall Hirsch, don't say off is not from. You get it? Now, the whole story, he had taught in Hirsch's school earlier. So it must have been some, I don't know what, over there. Um, but uh, and it's funny because 
Hoffman was from Hungary, so in Hirsch's school during the English part, they didn't wear a yarmulke because that's what how it worked in in those days in Germany. And Hoffman did. He writes about it in his Milan with a hole. It's a whole long funny story, but uh, but Hillsheimer didn't fire him. You know, he said this guy's from. I don't agree with what you're saying. He can't quote anybody. And so the question over how much openness a firm person should have to the non-firm Jewish culture, I'm talking about in the academic sense, in the history sense, in the study of philosophy, all the other, is an issue down till today. And uh, Hillsheimer's position was that uh, we are govers them. Uh, we don't agree with them, and we'll explain why we don't agree with them, but we're govers them. And this is a huge difference, because many people mistakenly think they would deal with Rav Hirsch, you're dealing with an openness towards Western culture, all the rest of it. Hirsch is open to Western culture in the most superficial sense. I'm telling you my opinion. I could be wrong. This is just my opinion. It's all you ever get in these things. Hirsch was open to Western culture in the sense of uh, manners and dress and literature to some degree, to some degree. He was the Schiller. But not an issue, it's like I said before, where you question how do you know the Torah is true or the Torah is about bad and all this sort of thing. That is very uh, yeshiva, shall we say. Alzheimer was not. He was open to it. And he said, let's, let's fight with them. You know, let's, let's defend our case. And if they have a kasha and also let's talk, you know, deal with it. Uh, so look how long I've gone on this. I could go for another two hours. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm presenting to you today a very, very unusual person. And I haven't only, and I've only scratched the surface. And, you know, the Rosham that he left on his students, that's the main legacy. Because they stay, here's a model it's very interesting, and again, I'm just telling you my opinion, which comes from my kishkas. His Talmudim stayed from because of him. You get it? His attitude was, and you've got to be a certain person to pull this off. He said, I'm going to let you go to college and go through all the trade stuff and see all the kashas and the Torah, all the rest of it. And I'm trusting you that having done all that, you'll stay from, you'll come up with the right attitude. And most of them did that because they had the Kesha with the Rebbe. Does that make sense? Yeah? It's a personal thing. You know, if you knew him, and you had a good relationship with him, uh, you're going to do the right thing. This is almost like the Tatar Shabbat from long ago. It's the Roshim of the individual over there. And it's really interesting, if I just pulled out, I have this from, uh, highlighted from my Malamad Lahoyal, because Robert C. Hoffman, you know, uh, has Shalas and Chubis. Uh, which was published later, and one of them is famous. When Hildesheimer died, they took it. They took the uh, body into the synagogue, you know, as they do sometimes. It's a whole shot in halacha. Can you make a hesper for somebody to bring the the aron into the shul? And uh, there's a short piece, but I'm going to read it to you, uh, precisely because it's short and goes to show you what a roshim he left on his students. And the question is, me parnasekehilasenu. From the leaders of our congregation in Berlin, Acher Petiras, Azriel Hildesheimer, Irashan Lahavis Mitosa Basikanasam, is permitted halachically to bring the, the, the nifter, the 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 Aaron in to the shul and make a hesped there. And the answer is he says, is attacking this uh minig. You don't do that, you're not supposed to do that to bring a, a dead body in the shul, because of Shirakla Vilna Gon, Shiyachabidoros came. 
But the Chacham Salam said they did it for the Gra. No, the Gra is a Yachabedero. But that's the exception. You know, that's the exception proves the rule. And Mori Rabbi Maram Shik also Tabam the Chacham Salam. And W. C. Hoffman says one of my Rebbe's was the Maram Shik early in his life, and he also was against it. Omnam, being Yonadi Don, however, in this case, ain't Suffolk, Shemutter Lahachnesan Shal Rabbeinu. Harina Kaparis Mishkavu Lebasik and Essas. There's no question that it's appropriate to bring Hilda's arm in the shawl. Ki hu hayagamkin yachid bedoro. Dor yosom. Eshkol. Isha kolbo. Kedusha. Tahara. Kharifis. Bekiyas. Hagav yaga. Yom of Alayla Batora Mitzvah. Vamaisim Tomim. Rats Kitzvi. Tavor. Abagibar Kari. Lavo. Vilamo. Bishvil Ani. Eretz Yisrael. Bishvil Sharn Yonim Mamlam. So I know there's not only what's in learning 24 7. But Mitzvah is 24-7, and, he, and, and for, for uh, Chesed, you know, causes. Masar Nasho, Vinilcham Ba'ad, and Munasenu, Neged Kol he was the leader against reform. reform. Hakol Bechinam, Lo Bad Betza Kesev, V'lorodav Achar HaKovet, Kim Hoya Anvason, V'shofel Berch, he was a big onov, V'kibed L'chol Talmud Chacham, Shabo Etzel Kiloi, Rabba Mubak, V'od Miruch, Od Midas Tovas, that kind of speaks for it. He says, ordinarily you shouldn't do it, but my rabbi, Hildesheimer, he was a Yaakov Bedoah. That's how his students felt about him. So, uh, this is the model, and the time is running out, so I'll just close out here, even though there's a lot more to say. Gone two, I don't think I've ever gone this long about anybody. Uh, too long. But here's the model of the person who keeps his students from because of his personal uh, personality. You understand? You say, you know, with a Rebbe like this, I'm not going to go off the derech. That's um, very impressive. You, know, you, you, know, you, don't, you don't run across that sometimes. It wouldn't have been possible to have the term derechets without that because the students are exposed to a lot of things. If you don't have that personal kesher, then, you know, then, then, then it doesn't work. I would add one last thing, and that is another big difference between him and Hirsch was he was the rabbi of uh, Austritz Gemeinde, just like Hirsch was. The community he had was legally separated from the Reform. They seceded with the law that Hirsch passed. It got passed in Prussia. And uh, therefore, they had a separate Kehill and everything else in, in Berlin. However, once he did that, and he was like in Hungary, you know, there was separate cemetery, separate everything. Once he did that, then he said to reform the others, okay, now how can we cooperate? Once we have our complete independence from you, and you don't control nothing, we run our kill 100% the way we do, where can we work together? And they did. Uh, certainly on helping, uh, you know, on, on uh, what's the right word, Klal things, Pinyin um, William things, uh, helping the Jews in Russia things, uh, what else? Chovetzian uh, things, um, it's a different attitude. In other words, I want that you shouldn't have a, a single yad whatsoever to control anything that goes in our Kehillah. But once we have that, now how can we figure a way to work together? And I can tell you that as a result, there were much better relations between the Reform and the Orthodox in Germany. Eventually, after he died, I remember that the uh, official community put the Vatikashras of Hildesheim's Vatikashras in charge of the whole Kehillah. You know what I'm saying? No, they said, 
uh, in that part, it was good. But anyway, I see my time's running up. So I think I've told you about a very, very unusual person. And if you're interested in this, you'll follow it up more beyond what I've said.